welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Journey and I am joined here by the lovely Nicole and Rebecca. This week, Rebecca is going to tell us about Vince Lee and Nicole is going to tell us about being deemed not criminally responsible. I am very excited personally to learn about how that applies to this case because I am not familiar with being deemed not criminally responsible. So I'm very excited. Um, before we begin, a listener's discretion is advised as we discuss topics of murder and cannibalism. Now let's get started. Rebecca, do you want to tell us about Vince Lee? I would love to tell you about Vincent Lee. So I wanted to start with his background. Uh, he was born on April 30th of 1968, and he grew up in northeastern China in the province of Liaoning. He had a bachelor degree in computers from the University of Wuhan Institute of Technology, and he actually had a quite um, he had a great job when he was in China. He worked as a computer software engineer for four years from 1994 to 1998. He and his wife on June 11, 2001, uh, decided to immigrate to Winnipeg, Canada to become Canadian citizens. And that was achieved a couple years later on November 7th of 2006. So unfortunately, when he moved to Canada, he was unable to find meaningful work with the degree that he had. Um, so he ended up working in various jobs, such as at a McDonald's, a Meatland Foods, and at a uh, Baptist Church for a period of about six months. He said he took these smaller jobs to support him and his wife in Canada, and the pastor of the church that he worked at actually said that he seemed quite happy to have a job and was committed to doing it well, despite the language barrier that he and other congregational members were experiencing. Uh, the pastor also said that Lee never showed any signs of anger issues or any trouble before he quit in the spring of 2005. Um, they were unsure of why he quit in 2005, but then in 2006, Lee abruptly moved to Edmonton, leaving his wife alone in Winnipeg. Um, this was a little bit strange, but she ended up joining him in Edmonton, so I guess all was well between them. And during his time in Edmonton, he worked at a Walmart, a fast food restaurant, and also in newspaper delivery. At the newspaper delivery company, um, his boss described him as reliable, hardworking, and not showing any signs of trouble. Around the end of June and the beginning of July in 2008, Lee was fired from Walmart after a disagreement with other employees. And unfortunately, I was never able to find more information about this disagreement, um, but he did end up getting fired. So it was July 28th, around midnight in Edmonton. Uh, Lee had boarded the Greyhound bus headed to Winnipeg. He got off the bus in Erickson, Manitoba around 6 p.m. on July 29th, and he had at least three pieces of luggage with him. And then he stayed the night on a bench next to the grocery store. Um, according to one witness, he was seen at about 3 a.m. sitting straight up on the bench with his eyes wide open, just staring forward. So that would be a little spooky to see. That kind of gives indications of something not right. Um, and then it was the next morning, the morning of July 30th, he was still at the bench and he sold his new laptop to a 15 year old boy for $60. That's a good deal. I wish my laptop was $60 sold from a crazy man, crazy looking man, might I say. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, though, this $60 laptop was seized by the RCMP as evidence because of this case. Um, however, 
because the boy was so honest about where he got it and giving up his laptop, an anonymous business ban- uh, an anonymous businessman bought him a new one. So no harm, no foul. <laughs> that was very nice of this anonymous businessman. I know. I couldn't find his name. He's just anonymous. That's fantastic. He's doing good deeds. Well, if any anonymous business anonymous businessmen want to donate us computers, we would gladly take them. Absolutely. So it was shortly before 6 p.m. on July 30th that Lee had boarded the bus heading to Winnipeg, which was also carrying passenger Tim McLean and 35 other passengers. So a little bit about Tim McLean. He was a carnival barker and he was returning home to Winnipeg after completing a tour of Canada, his final stop being in Edmonton. He was already on the bus for about 20 hours at this time when Lee had gotten on just before 6 p.m. McLean was sitting in the back just about one row in front of the bathroom and Lee was initially sitting near the front of the bus. However, at a scheduled rest stop, Lee moved to the back of the bus to sit with McLean, who barely acknowledged him before he fell asleep wearing his headphones. Next, a witness, Garnet Caton, who sat in front of them, said that it was about half an hour after Lee moved to the back that he heard a blood-curdling scream coming from behind him. And when he looked behind, he had noticed that Lee had produced a large knife and begun stabbing McLean, appearing to be completely unprovoked. So the first two stab wounds uh, were while McLean was sitting down and they were to the neck and the upper chest. They were both um, after the first two, McLean got the adrenaline, I suppose, to get out of his seat and attempt to get out of the way. He managed to get to the aisle, um, but unfortunately, Lee focused on him again in the aisle and continued to stab him. So at this time, the bus driver pulled over off the road, disabled the bus with the emergency immobilizer system so Lee couldn't drive it, and then ushered all of the passengers off board. According to witnesses on board, the passengers scrambled to get off board, um, knocking an elderly woman to the floor in the process, and one other passenger who was seated near the back even threw her toddler over several rows of seats to get her child further from the danger. She threw her baby like a football. That's how I pictured it. And left the old woman on the floor. Yeah, I was uh, I was a little caught off guard with that that mental imagery of the baby being thrown. Do you think because a toddler's what like two, three? How old is a toddler? About that age. Do you hold it like a football and throw it, or do you hold both? <laughs> do you hold like both hands and like push it and toss it over half a bus? I feel like it was a both hand kind of like push, but could you imagine there's like chaos happening at the back of the bus? You're sitting at the front of the bus. You don't really know what's going on. All of a sudden, a toddler comes screaming by you and knocks out the person (laughs) sitting beside you. Could you imagine? What? But like, okay, side, like, yes, terrible things were happening at the back of the bus. Why would you not keep your child with you and ensure that they're safe? in your arms with you protecting them you know you know what i mean (laughs) i yeah i understand where you're coming from interesting okay carry on (laughs) so 
Uh, one of the witnesses mentioned earlier, Garnet Caton, who sat in front of him, he actually served five years in the Canadian forces and was proximately closest to Lee, like on the bus. Uh, so he had said that he asked a nearby man on the bus for help trying to rescue McLean, but the other guy just took off. He wanted nothing to do with it. So very shortly after this happened, um, Caton said that McLean's screaming had stopped and he really knew that there was nothing he could do to save him. So he also left the bus. It is then reported by Caton that when he jumped off the bus, he was met by a trucker who stopped to see what was going on. Um, and then supposedly this trucker had grabbed a crowbar and the witness grabbed a hammer and they tried to make sure that Lee stayed on the bus, I guess, by intimidating him and waving them around. Um, it's reported that Lee swung his knife at them through the partially closed bus door. So while I'm discussing Casson, another thing he had said about the incident was that when the initial stabbing occurred, Lee appeared strikingly calm. He said, quote, there was no rage or anything. He was like a robot stabbing the guy, unquote. So Lee returned to McLean's body near the rear of the bus and used this knife to begin cutting through his neck. Um, shortly after, he walked back to the front of the bus, holding McLean's head, showing it to the 34 passengers and bus driver that were standing outside. After this, Lee then returned to the body and began cutting more pieces from it. Um, and I also believe that he left the head at the front of the bus. Wait, so, so he, like, some Medusa type thing, head in hand, just like, here you go, look at it. You know, like when yes. they cut Medusa's head off and they just like walk around with her head because she yeah. can't do anything at the point. That's um, that's interesting. Okay, nice. Yeah, it definitely would be a scary sight. Um, actually, many uh, witnesses reported that everyone around them was just crying and vomiting because of the sight that they just saw. That yep. is very understandable. Yep. Yep, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So. Lee, after showing the passengers the head, then returned to the body and began cutting more pieces from it. Um, and then around 8.30 p.m., only about 10 minutes after the attack started, the RCMP arrived to the scene on the side of the road in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. So that's where the bus was pulled over. By 9 p.m., police had summoned special negotiators as well as a heavily armed tactical unit and were engaged in a standoff with Lee, who was still on the bus. Lee was seen by police alternating between pacing the length of the bus and cutting pieces off of the corpse. Um, it's also said that during the standoff, they observed him eating various parts of the body. So... Meanwhile, all of while all this is happening, the passengers were transported from the scene to be interviewed at the Brandon RCMP detachment. And RCMP officers reportedly heard Lee say, quote, I have to stay on the bus forever, unquote. The police were on the scene outside of the bus for a total of four hours and 48 minutes before Lee broke a window on the bus and attempted to climb out of it. But he was tasered twice by police and then promptly arrested. So. Retrieved from Lee's pockets when he was in the car were the victim's ear, nose, and tongue in plastic bags. Um, and on the bus, in four to six various locations, they retrieved more plastic bags of other various body parts, organs, and flesh. 
Uh, McLean's eyes and part of his heart were also never recovered. So it's presumed that Lee had also eaten those. That's probably one of the things he was observed eating by the police. Um, I don't know that eyes would be my choice of human delicacy. Yeah, I'm uh I don't I don't think mine would be either, but to each their own. Mm-hmm. Also, where did he get the plastic bags to put all of the body parts in? I was just thinking that. Like did he just have sandwich bags, Ziploc bags with him? I guess. I I never found that. <laughs> this man came prepared. All right, all right. In addition to the body parts that were recovered um, all over the bus, it was also disclosed that he was stabbed um, over a hundred times during the killing. That's That's, a lot. I was just going to say, that's a lot of times. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's, it's definitely overkill. Um, But Lee actually somewhat explains his thought process of the time. Uh, in a in a future interview. So Lee was charged with second degree murder and first appeared in court on March 3rd, 2009, a few months after the crime. Um, in court, he pled not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder, also known as NCRMD. It's reported that during his hearing at a courthouse in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, the only words he had said were pleas for someone to kill him. Lee's trial only took two days and only heard from two witnesses, which were two psychiatrists, Dr. Stanley Yaron and Dr. Jonathan Rutenberg, who both testified that Lee was suffering from schizophrenia and a psychotic episode. They also testified that because of his mental state at the time of the crime, he was in absolutely no state to tell the difference between right and wrong. One of them had testified that Lee heard what he thought was the voice of God telling him to kill McLean or risk being killed himself. Dr. Rutenberg uh, testified in court, quote, the attack was sudden and came as Lee caught a glimpse of the sunlight and heard God's voice telling him that McLean was a threat. The voice said, quote, do it now. If you don't, he's going to kill you, unquote, unquote. Lee was deemed not criminally responsible because that there are two elements that must be present to establish a person's guilt. These are actus reus, which is uh, the wrongful deed of the crime, and mens rea, which is the criminal intent. And Lee only demonstrated one of them. So actus reus is actually the Latin term for guilty act and is commonly defined as a criminal act that was the result of voluntary body movement. Lee demonstrated actus reus because he himself killed and mutilated McLean. However, mens rea is the Latin term for guilty mind and is commonly defined as the mental element of a person's intention to commit a crime or knowledge of what would happen when this crime was committed. Because Lee was suffering from a serious psychotic episode due to his schizophrenia, he was unaware of the true crime that he was committing. In an interview with the CEO of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada, Chris Somerville, while Lee was staying at the Selkirk Mental Health Center, when asked why he committed that crime on the bus, Lee said, quote, I bought a knife at Canadian Tire. I bought it for any emergency for the journey to protect myself from the aliens. I was really scared. I believed he was an alien. The voices told me to kill him, that he would kill me or others. I do not believe this now. It was totally wrong. It was my fault. I sinned, but it was the schizophrenia, unquote. 
At the end of the trial, Lee was found NCRMD, so not criminally responsible not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder, and he was remanded to the forensic ward of the Selkirk Mental Health Center for Psychiatric Treatment in Manitoba. His case was reviewed yearly as his protocol with cases deemed NCRMD. So on May 30th of 2010, the review board made the decision that he should reside in the locked forensic ward at the Selkirk Mental Health Center, but that he be granted uh, staff supervised hospital ground pass privileges. Uh, so these passes would start at 15 minute increments and increase uh, to a maximum of one hour twice daily that he could be on hospital grounds with supervision. Uh, the treatment team is of the opinion in 2010 that his condition was stable and that it would be appropriate and safe for him to leave the locked ward. Um, however, while he was away from the locked ward, they believed he still needed to be escorted at all times. The following year, on May 30th, 2011, CBC reported that Lee was responding well to his psychiatric treatment and that his doctors had recommended that he receive more freedoms phased over several months. The same year, the review board had granted him permission to spend up to a full day outside the locked unit on hospital grounds. He needed to be accompanied by one staff member still at all times. Uh, the board did not authorize him any group outings on the ground, or nor did it allow him escorted passes into the community. So he was still only really allowed the contact with his one staff member. He couldn't do group outings. However, at least he was starting to gain some more freedoms around the hospital. The following year, in 2012, Lee was then permitted to, um, to go on escorted trips to the community of Selkirk with a staff member. Um, the passes started at 30 minutes and increased incrementally to a maximum of a full-day um, pass. Lee had to be escorted at all times by a staff member and a security officer at this time. The next year, in 2013, Lee was allowed to make supervised full-day trips further away uh, than, the, than the community to Lockport, Winnipeg, as well as to nearby beaches. So, that's nice. Got to go to the beach. <laughs> yeah, that's what you want. Of course. In addition to this, the review board in 2013 also said that Lee was now allowed to have unescorted trips to the grounds of the mental hospital, starting for 15 minutes at a time and working up to a full day. So in the community, he still required supervision, but in the hospital, he was granted his own freedom. The following year, in 2014, Lee was allowed to leave the mental hospital without an escort and visit Selkirk. The board rules that Lee can start with 30-minute visits on his own and increase to full days, uh, but supervision on his outings to Winnipeg and local beaches was relaxed a little more, and he was allowed to be moved to an unlocked ward of the hospital as well. So if he was in the direct community of Selkirk, he had day passes uh, for his himself without supervision, but if he wanted to go to further communities, he still needed a bit of supervision. So this is like less than what four years after he ate a man yeah so the crime happened in 2008 and he was allowed in selkirk without supervision in 2014 nice i like that that's good <laughs> <laughs> so 
The following year again, on February 23rd, 2015, experts recommended that the board allow Lee to be transferred to a Winnipeg hospital with an eye to moving him to a community group home. Lee's psychiatrist and other doctors um, also recommended that he be granted unescorted outings to Winnipeg in addition to Selkirk. But on February 27, 2015, the review board had said that he must remain at the Selkirk Mental Health Center or at the psychiatric center at the Winnipeg Hospital, but that he was allowed to have unescorted visits to Winnipeg. So the final review board hearing was in 2017 when the review board deemed Lee healthy enough to grant him an absolute discharge. An absolute discharge means that he's completely free of all legal responsibility related to the crime, and he's no longer required to attend annual reviews or abide to conditions of his sentencing. So he today currently is living under a different name than Vincent Lee in a community in Manitoba. And so he's just like out in the world? Yep. Is he is he back with his wife? Do we ever know oh, or was his um, wife like nah you you're crazy you ate someone i'm uh i'm unsure when they got a divorce but somewhere in my research i read that they're divorced okay i mean understandable yeah that makes is he, sense. Is he with anyone new um not that i saw he um yeah not that i s- saw i read something and i'm trying to remember where i read it but i can't now which is disappointing i know it's in one of my citations um he has a brother and a sister and obviously his two parents but his two parents are still alive and his brother and sister both know about what he did but his mother and father who still live in china have no idea that this happened what yeah he never told them and they just never found out so Just before I wrap up uh, Vincent Lee's story, I just have a couple other points. Um, The first one being um, identifying the victim, uh, who was Timothy McLean. So in an interview with Timothy McLean's mother, whose name is Carol Dedelli, this interview was in Aftermath of Murder, Survivor Stories, uh, and that is linked in our sources. You can find the video if you'd like to watch it. Um, Dedeli told the interviewer that she and her family um, had been hearing about the murder on the news when it happened, and they were shocked and scared by how close it was to home, but they didn't know it was their son because they never told the identity of the victim on the news. So they had stated that they were praying for the family of the victim, and they were just hoping that whoever it was would be okay. And it was not until 24 hours after the murder that the RCMP notified her and her family that the victim was her son, Timothy. That makes me so sad. Yeah. So they were praying for the family, but they were the family. Um, They were told by the police that the reason it took 24 hours was because they wanted to be positive or at least mostly positive that they had the correct identity before contacting the family. And the reason it took so long to identify him was because the usually identifiable characteristics, like the many tattoos that Timothy had, uh, couldn't be used for identification because of how badly mangled his body was. Ooh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's very sad, unfortunately, that they had to find out on the news so much sooner than they had to find out it was their own son. But I think that's a justifiable reason 
to postpone contacting someone. You want to be sure you're contacting the right person. (laughs) Yeah, you can't really come back from telling a family that their son is dead and then being like, oh, JK, wrong person, sorry. So that's the story of the Greyhound bus killing um, and what had happened. And just before I hand over the mic to Nicole to talk about criminal responsibility, I just wanted to share a couple quotes that I found uh, from an interview that was done with Lee in 2014 when he was still at the Selkirk Mental Health Center uh, with the CEO of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada, Chris Somerville. So, uh, it wasn't a vi- the interview wasn't a video. Um, it was a transcript, which is why I'm going to say the questions and answers. <laughs> um, but one of the questions that I found thought was interesting uh, was, "When did you begin to experience schizophrenia?" And Lee said, "Quote: In 2004, I didn't know what it was. I now know what it is. I began to hear voices that normal people do not hear. I thought I heard the voice of God telling me to write down my journey. The voice told me that I was the third story of the Bible. That I was like the second coming of Jesus." I was to save people from a space alien attack. That is why I traveled around the country. I am not sure of all the places I went to. I now know that it was schizophrenia that I was suffering from, unquote. So I just thought that that was a really interesting quote because it gives you kind of an inside view of what he was hearing. Because when you have schizophrenia, these voices can sometimes be so hard that you can't distinguish them from reality so even though to us this might sound like really out there and like how can you not know this is fake but to him this was reality at the moment i just wanted to share a couple quotes as well because i know that obviously what he did was a really really heinous crime however he was also a victim in the sense that he was suffering from undiagnosed schizophrenia and that he really wasn't himself and was not in his right mind when this was happening. So he is also a victim in this. Um, And he does express remorse very frequently in this interview. Um, The question was, how do you feel about what happened? And he answered, quote, I feel nervous. I feel painful. I am embarrassed. It was wrong, unquote. Uh, There was another uh, question. Do you understand why people are scared of you? He answered, quote, yes, I don't think I will ever do it again. I don't I didn't know at the time I had schizophrenia. Now I do, unquote. He was asked, what would you say to Miss Dedelli and Tim McLean's family? He said, quote, I'm really sorry for what I did. If I could talk to her directly, I would do anything for her family. I would ask forgiveness, but I know it would be hard to accept, unquote. Um, and then he also talks about... There was a question asked, how do we know you will take your medication when you get out on your own? Because a lot of people have that concern when there's people with not criminally responsible uh, on account of mental disorder. They think, well, what if they get out of the institution and stop taking their meds and do it again? But Lee had answered, quote, I would be glad to be under a treatment order because medication helps me. It is very important. I don't want to do what I did ever again, unquote. So. If he was under a treatment order, I suppose it would basically mean that taking medication would be mandatory and he could probably get fines or go back to the facility. He's not under one, but I think the willingness to state that he would willingly go under one because he never plans to go off medication is a pretty strong statement. But 
yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say about Vincent Lee and his story. Um, yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. That was very, very interesting. I, I am glad to hear that he is remorseful and like isn't going to do it again because it's scary, the thought of him being out there. But at least he r- realizes how important his medication is and that stops him from eating people. So that's really nice. Um, Nicole, did you want to tell us about why he was deemed not criminally responsible and what kind of goes into that? I would love to, Journey. <laughs> I also sort of want to say, too, so last year in my forensic psychology class, like we did learn about Vince Lee, but we never really went into the deep details of what he did. I just knew that he had like a tongue and an ear in his pocket, I think it was. And I was like, oh, that's pretty messed up. But to hear all of that information, I was not expecting that, especially the toddler and the old lady. That threw me off guard. But anyways, um, I do want to first briefly talk about what's called fitness to stand trial. It kind of relates into the sense of what we talked about with Vince Lee. And then I will talk more about criminal responsibility and all of that. So to start, insanity in the legal sense, it's defined as the impairment of mental or emotional functioning that impacts perceptions, beliefs, and motivations. So insanity itself is really a legal term. It's not something else. Like it was created, yeah, you can use it not for a legal context, but it's mainly used in legal context for people who are psychologically impaired at the time of an offense. So the insanity defense, or what's known as Rebecca said, uh, criminal responsibility on account of mental disorder, it looks to see if the offender had a mental illness at the time of the crime causing their criminal action. But then you have the other side of it where your fitness to stand trial, this is where the court looks at the defendant's mental state, but at the time of the trial, not the time of the crime to see if they're able to understand charges laid against them, if they're able to communicate with their defense counsel and all of that kind of stuff. So like I just said, to be found fit means you understand the charges and proceedings and you can help prepare your defense. But to be seen as unfit, you're unable to conduct a defense at any stage of the proceedings due to a mental disorder. So there, when it says like at any stage, you're allowed through a proceeding to bring up this defense of unfit to stand trial at any point. So you could be like right before a guilty verdict and be like, oh, actually I'm unfit to stand trial. And then it basically postpones the trial, the proceedings. They have to do these assessments and then they'll be deemed fit or unfit. So restoring fitness. So if a defendant is deemed unfit, The goal of the criminal justice system is basically just to make them fit. So if they're unfit, they're like, okay, well, what can we do to make you understand and then put you away to jail? So their first approach, you treat the underlying mental illness with medication. That's kind of always the first step is just give someone medication. This obviously has caused some debate. The treatment may be refused by the defendant. Um, This isn't seen with Vince Lee. I know he didn't take medication like throughout the trial, but when he was in his psychiatric facility, he definitely was okay with taking medication. And 
If the defendant is unable to make a competent decision, though, about whether they want to take the medication or should or have to, it's actually, it can be court ordered for them to take it. And then it can get a little dicey after that if it's court ordered. Their next approach is to stop the trial and wait. So if they're seen as unfit, there's kind of a whole proceeding of things of time-wise. So the trial is stopped for 45 days. If it, after 45 days, the trial then resumes. If they are deemed unfit again after that 45 days, it's stopped for another 45 days. If still seen unfit after these 90 days, the defendant is then referred to a review board for an assessment. And I'll talk about the review board a little bit later, but it's a bit different from the review boards that are associated with the NCRMD um, cases. And then if the review board finds them fit, the trial resumes. If not, the case is reviewed annually and they're technically like conditionally discharged or they'll be in a hospital. And then the review happens every two years, basically having to prove that they're still unfit and they can't go to trial. I'm surprised that it's every two years because for not criminally responsible, it's every one year. Like yeah. you think they would, they would do it every year to be like, okay, come on, be fit, hurry it up. Yeah, even a year seems like a lot because I feel like if it's a severe crime, like if Vince Lee was deemed unfit, like he was fit to stand trial, so it didn't apply to him. But in the case of cannibalism, I would think that you'd want to do assessments every six months, nine months, you know, like not wait the full 12. I feel like that would just be the reasonable thing to do. True. I agree. Yeah. So after all these two years, whatever, whatever, if the defendant is unable to become fit again, so they're just perpetually unfit to stand trial, there's actually a stay of proceedings and they're given an absolute discharge from what I could find, which kind of is silly to me. Um, but that's what I found online. So if you're not fit to stand trial, they just throw out the charges? Basically, yeah. How are they going to charge you if you don't know what you're being charged against? So what do they do then? Uh, typically, I, w- I think that they, an absolute discharge in the sense that the charges are dropped, but you still are needing to, like, go to a hospital or a psychiatric facility, spend time there, and you still have this review process, from my understanding. It's just, like, they kind of just stop trying to charge you at that point. It's just an assessment of mental health, I think. Okay. Is that right, Rebecca? I'm going off the note. Uh, typically an absolute discharge just means like you're free from the system. So they probably wouldn't ask them to go to the hospital, but that sounds more similar to a conditional discharge. Yeah. It seems so backward. Like it makes sense to me to have them like have to go to like a psychiatric facility and kind of make sure that they're not going to do whatever crime they did again before releasing them into the general public just for fun. I think in the sense of the criminal system, we just don't have the funds to keep assessing someone every two years. Because at that point, like, if it's eight years down the road, 
like, what are you going to do after eight years if this guy still can't understand the charges? Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess it does become a waste of the taxpayer's money, pretty much. Um, so it's because of Bill C-10, which was enacted uh, on January 1st of 2006, um, that people who are continuously deemed unfit um, can be granted an absolute discharge. So it just means that they're released from the system and like they don't even have to be checked in on by like a set psychiatric facility or anything. Because uh, at least what the Government of Canada website says is that because they're deemed permanently unfit, they don't pose a significant threat to society because they're unfit to stand trial. So how can they commit a crime, I guess? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But but they committed a crime and that's how they were deemed unfit. Yeah, I guess. Like, Could you not just cheat the system at that point and just act very... Uh, deficient in intelligence. I did not know how to word that. That's not how it's properly said. But you know what I mean. Like, couldn't you just cheat the system at that point? But you'd have to try. Yeah, you'd have to fool, like, a psychologist. Multiple psychiatrists. Yeah. (laughs) There's some pretty uh, determined people out there. That's true. But, yeah, it's unlikely, but yes. Okay, Okay, that makes sense. Thank you for clarifying that, Rebecca. So that's kind of the whole fitness to stand trial. So this is understanding the time at the trial. But then if you kind of go back, you have a retrospective view of the crime, and that's the insanity defense. So I'm not sure what year it was changed to the NCRMD defense, but it did used to be known as the insanity defense. And this is quite a difficult thing to determine because of the fact that you're having to look at an offender's mental state at the time of a crime and the way that trials work and the legal system works this could be years prior so you could be working on an insanity defense like 10 years later having to look 10 years in the past And, like, how are you going to determine if they knew what they were capable of 10 years ago kind of thing? And kind of like what Rebecca said, so to be deemed guilty, there's a requirement of the actus reus and the mens rea. And, again, actus rea is the criminal action, and then mens rea is the guilty mind. So in the case of an NCRMD, the guilty mind is absent for offenders. And so the defense is based on the idea that the offender is unable to understand any sort of criminal intent, essentially. So as I just kind of reiterating what I said, like they just had no idea what they were doing at the time and they're using their mental illness or their mental disease, sorry, their mental disease, not as an excuse, but as an explanation as to what happened. And if the defense states that their defendant has a mental illness, the Crown is allowed to argue this claim. So whichever side, the adversarial side, mentions it, so this is either the Crown or the defense, they need to prove the presence of this mental illness. So typically, like, psychologists are called in, family doctors, like, any type of evidence that can link like prove that there was a mental illness even 10 years ago depending on what time the crime happened um does it have to be like a specific 
mental illness like schizophrenia or would like anxiety or depression be considered enough to plead insanity? That I don't know. Cause originally I think it was like everything except bipolar, which makes no sense because if you're in a manic phase, like that would be much more understandable than anxiety or something. Yeah. Like that. Um, but I think it would just depend on what's defined as a mental disorder, like through the DSM-5 or okay. whatever the American handbook is. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not actually 100% sure on that. Okay. A little bit of history on the insanity defense. It actually dates back to the 13th century England, where they used to administer what's called the wild beast test. And by the 18th century, insanity tests would focus on the defendant's reasoning and their ability to know what's right or wrong. So I didn't, I don't know much about the wild beast test, but I feel like if you're just crazy, you would be deemed insanity or sorry, you'd be deemed insane. And by the 18th century, it switched from an encompassment of insanity to, oh, do you know what's right? Do you know what's wrong? There's kind of a misconception around the insanity defense and through like crime shows and all this stuff, it makes it seem like the insanity defense or NCRMD is quite common, which really it isn't. So it's only used for about 1% of offenders. And in this 1%, only 20% of those are successful in like the insanity defense. Yeah, so it's not a very common thing. And like we talked about earlier, kind of with the um, unfit to stand trial, the offenders who plea NCRMD, they aren't necessarily just released either, like some may think. I know in some court shows, like, oh, if they're deemed insanity, it's, well, all of their charges are dropped, let them go. But really, they're only released when they're deemed safe to do so. And then this safe, it's kind of questionable and it, it takes some time to determine that. And like, sorry, even this, like, it's not just like they go from being in a locked forensic ward till five years later. They're like, oh, you're OK now. Like, look at Vincent Lee, who every year they just added like small changes We're like, OK, so now you can be supervised around the hospital. And then it's like it's working up to normalcy and like yeah. society living again. Yeah, which I think should be done not just for NCRMD cases. Like, I feel like that's the easiest way to um, not rehabilitate, but you know what I mean? Like, offenders bringing them back into the real world. Yeah, kind of like reintegrate them better into society by like working them back into society. Yeah, that's the word. Thank you. So the NCRMD... It doesn't necessarily focus on guilt in Canada, but it focuses on, as I said, if they were criminally responsible at the time of the crime. So you're not looking at, oh, are you guilty of doing this crime? Because it's kind of assumed, yeah, you are. But did you know that what you were doing was wrong at the time? And then with this uh, with this defense as well, it's presumed that no one is suffering from a mental disorder unless the opposite is proven. So it's kind of like you're seen as innocent until proven guilty. It's like you're seen to not have a disorder unless proven otherwise. So that's kind of how it works in the legal system, apparently. And there's a bunch of tests to 
kind of figure out if you are not criminally responsible. So the first one, well, one of the first ones, it was, it emerged in 1843. It's called the McNaughton test or McNaughton test. So this was of an individual. His name was David Daniel McNaughton. He was having delusions where he thought the Tory party wanted to kill him apparently. And I guess the Tory party is like the conservative party, but in England or in Europe somewhere. So uh, Daniel McNaughton had gone to try and kill this group. I don't know how he thought he was going to kill a whole group, but he ended up shooting the secretary of the prime minister instead, the British prime minister. (laughs) And Yeah. I still don't understand the logistics of this case, but that's what happened. And the test, so there was this whole test about it now. It had to prove that the accused has a disease of the mind and either doesn't understand what they're doing or if it's wrong. So because of uh, McNaughton's delusions, he obviously didn't think it was wrong. But then this raises the issue, though, of do they mean legally wrong or morally wrong? Because those can be two very different things. And how are you going to, like, quantitatively prove something's morally wrong? Because everyone has different morals. All the different cultures have different morals. Like, it's a very difficult thing to try and prove. And then in the 19th century, something called the irresistible impulse test was added onto the McNaughton test. And so this added the strength of an impulse or desire to cause someone to commit a particular act. So if you had a crazy desire wash over you to kill someone, that would fall under your not criminally responsible defense. And of course, as most tests are, this addition was faced with a lot of criticism because how can you really prove you aren't in control of your actions? And how can someone else prove that? to a different individual like it'd be easier to try and prove it for yourself but how are you going to do that for a stranger in 1954 there's something called the durham rule and this emerged and was considered a product test for insanity and then later the american law institute test stated that defendants could be found not guilty by reason of insanity for both cognitive and volitional reasons but this also excluded personality disorders. So you could be found not guilty based on your thought processes and like your cognition or it's just like your will. So the use of one's will is your volitional reasons, but then they decided to not include personality disorders. So interesting. After that, there's a Rogers Criminal Responsibility Assessment Scales. This is called an R-Craft. There's 30 items per scale, and scores range from 0 to 6. And the higher the score, the greater the severity, and thus not criminally responsible, like you're less criminally responsible, if that makes sense. You also have the mental screening evaluations. This is where defendants are screened out if their actions were not caused by a mental disorder. If they can prove otherwise, you're basically just screened out and you're not included in this um, NDRMD defense. 
And this also aims to sensitize the psychologists that are performing these tests um, to the kind of information that's required from the defendant when addressing the mental state. So I'm sure psychologists hear a whole bunch of not great things. So it's understandable as to why that this can help sensitize them. And then lastly, another assessment tool is just neuroimaging. So this can help identify any brain anomalies or any disorders within the brain that you can see through like fRMI, RMI, PET scans, all those kind of things. And as we kind of talk about with on like fitness to stand trial, there's a couple different outcomes with the NCRMD defense. So if you're found NCRMD, this doesn't mean an acquittal, like how we kind of said with unfit to stand trial. If you're just deemed unfit to stand trial after years and years, you're just kind of let go because of the bill. That's not necessarily how it works for NCRMD. There's a third option in which the case is diverted to a provincial or territorial review board, which is what Rebecca kind of talked about earlier. So these are special tribunals that include either a judge or someone who has qualified judicial experience or status kind of thing. And then there's at least four other people on that board as well. And one of those minimum four members, they have to be like licensed or registered um, to practice psychiatry. So you need to have at least one judge or someone of equal status and at least one psychiatrist, which is interesting that it's not a psychologist because psychiatry and psychology are similar, but very different at the same time. So I would think maybe include both. You have the review board who would conduct assessments to determine if the defendant is still a threat to the public. And they would then craft a disposition that protects both the public and attempts to provide treatment to underlying mental disorders. They try to be that middleman of not just focusing on putting away because it'll help the public, but also making them better. So similarly to being unfit to stand trial, you have an absolute discharge, which cannot be altered. This is when you're released back into the community without restrictions since they're not deemed a risk to society. But I don't think this happens very often because as we talked about, like you're, you still ate someone, you're still a Campbell, you still did awful things. So I'm not too sure what the percentage is of their discharges. Um, I feel like if you are not deemed not criminally responsible, would you not just get tried as yeah, criminally responsible? Right. Like. Yeah, that's what I don't get because you can, I think I mentioned it earlier. Yeah, so you can be deemed NCRMD, but you can also possibly be deemed unfit to stand trial. Oh. And in that case, I think it's just the whole kind of shit show in that sense. Like, I'm not sure the underlying logistics behind it all. And I'm yeah. not sure how often that comes up in cases. Because I was going to ask, like, why or how can someone be deemed not criminally responsible and still deemed unfit to stand trial? Like, they feel like they should go together. Like, one kind of goes off of the other. In my brain, yeah. at least. There might be situations in which they go together. But, like, I don't know if Vince Lee was ever considered unfit to stand trial. But... Considering his uh, trial was a few months after the crime, 
Uh, it's possible that he could have been like uh, initially deemed unfit to stand trial. So they could have put him in like a psychiatric ward and medicated him until like he was kind of back to himself. And then he was fit. So like, I think they could go together, but there's also the possibility of like, maybe someone in prison after committing a crime goes through a psychotic episode and is no longer fit because of this happening in prison. Yeah. That's what like I kind of go to, like, especially say you go through like a manic episode five years in the past, kill someone through mania. At that time you'd be seen as not criminally responsible on account of a mental disorder, but say five years later, for example, with medication, whatever, whatever, you would understand just how Vince, how Vince Lee now does. Like, oh, what I did was absolutely not right. So then at that point, they'd be seen to be fit to stand trial. The only thing that I could think of is if you have, like, basically a lobotomized defendant who just cannot do anything. So they don't know what's right or wrong at the time of the trial, but then they're also unable to communicate with counsel. That would be like the only scenario that I could imagine where you'd have NCRMD and unfit to stand trial. I don't know though. I'll have to look it up because I'm curious now. Would it be different if the person who, or like they're deemed unfit to stand trial because they're not showing remorse? Or is that something completely different? I think that's completely different because you, you still are able you're just an asshole at that point. Like you're just oh, so yeah. able to form a defense, tell the offender or sorry, tell the counsel and communicate with them. You know what you did, whatever, whatever. It's just, you lack that more. Yeah. You just don't feel bad about it, which is a lot of the cases too, with um, homicides that I've noticed. Uh, yeah. They're, they're still fit to stand trial. They just, don't care what they did or they they think that it was the right thing to do or they had it coming to them that kind of thing like chris watts he was just an asshole he didn't care that he killed his family he just wanted to be with his new woman i that documentary drives me crazy uh that's a whole other topic well (laughs) it's what is it called american murder and it's on netflix I recommend that to anyone. Everyone should go watch it. Yeah, it's really good. It's like the the killer next door, the American murderer. Anyways, I suggest it. Add that to your list next. Anyways, full 360, back to <laughs> discharges. So you then as well have a conditional discharge. As discussed, this is when you're released, but it's kind of like on a probation. So you have to meet certain conditions. So, like, not to have a firearm, you have to schedule check-ins with a psychologist or an officer. And there's certain ones that they have to do. So, you have to reside in a particular place. So, it's like a group home or a given residence. You can't kind of go couch surfing. You have to abstain from illegal drugs and or alcohol. Bad. (laughs) You have to... Submit to urine analysis testing for prohibited substances. Sorry, substances. You have to abide by a specified treatment plan. So I guess with Vince Lee, he had his specific treatments for to treat his schizophrenia, um, medications, counseling, and whatnot. You have to report to a designated person. So this can be a psychiatrist, 
on a scheduled basis. And as I said, you have to refrain from possessing weapons. If the defendant does not follow these conditions, this can actually lead to an incarceration because at that point, it's a criminal offense because they're breaking the rules or they're sent to a psychiatric facility. And just, sorry, and unlike an absolute discharge, you can alter this decision. So that's what I mean. Like if you are following it and then midway through, you decide not to follow the steps, you're like, oh, no, I don't want you out anymore. You're going back. And the last kind of option, if you're found not criminally responsible, is to go to a psychiatric facility or a hospital. But going to a psychiatric facility, this can also be altered, um, just like a conditional discharge. And the review board is still required to hold a hearing and order a new disposition in 90 days for both a conditional discharge and detention or psychiatric. So once they're out in 90 days, you have to do a review and you have a hearing to see what's going to happen next, pretty much. Because if they're screwing off and doing God knows what, then they're being sent back. Kind of connecting the two, unfit to stand trial or fitness and criminal responsibility. Someone who's found unfit to stand trial would also be diverted to this kind of review board, just like an NCRMD. But neither courts or review boards are able to order an absolute discharge on these cases, though, like unfit to stand trial. I guess this is where the bill comes in. I'm not 100% sure. But they can only order a conditional discharge or detention order which I thought was interesting. So who orders the absolute discharge? I have no idea. Okay. I believe, <laughs> a I think a court orders it. Like a That trial. would be the judge. No, though. Like neither courts nor review boards are able to do that apparently. Oh. So is it more oh. of like a, a government thing? Because if it follows Bill 130 or whatever it is, would this not be a federal decision? Yeah, weird. Because this is on the like Department of Justice DOJ website. Yeah. Weird, because well, I feel like if they have it, someone should be able to say this is an absolute discharge. Or do you think it's like a psychologist or a psychiatrist kind of? That would make the most sense, I feel like, because I didn't find anything on the, the DOJ website. It just said that courts or review boards. So that kind of only leaves psychiatrist or psychologist because they're the ones working closest with the defendant and know their state of mind yeah so it's since bill c10 um absolute discharges can't be given by review board still but the power is given to the courts to do so oh so the doj was lying to me then <laughs> all right canada this is this is justice.gc.ca. Oh, shit. That is still the Department of Justice website. Maybe I'm illiterate. Thank you for fact-checking me. The, the fact-checker <laughs> checked, the fa checked the fact-checker. Say that ten times fast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so review boards cannot give an absolute discharge. The court can. And I assume the court can only do it based on the referral of a psychologist or psychiatrist. That would make the most sense. Anyways, that is all I have. 
on fitness to stand trial and criminal responsibility. Well, thank you. It was very interesting. I learned a lot. All right. So we did a random number generator and we got number 25. And number 25 is Andre Chikatilo. And he is a Russian serial killer. So it'll be very interesting to learn about him. And with him, we are going to explore the science of serology. So that'll be very, very interesting. I'm very excited because he's a he's a, he's a messed up dude. All right. So before we go, I have a joke for you guys, and I'm really excited about it. Okay. Is it science related? Yeah, it's friend. It's a forensic joke. Uh, okay, I'm excited. And I hope it hasn't been said before, but I honestly can't remember. We need to keep track of this. Okay. How many forensic scientists does it take to change a light bulb? How many? Two. Oh. No, only two. One to screw it in and one to check for fingerprints. <laughs> Why would you check for fingerprints on a light bulb journey? Well, we need that squeaky feeling light. What yes. about case notes? Someone should be taking notes while they screw it in. The crime scene, the temperature, are the lights <laughs> off or off? Hmm, I don't know. Amazing. <laughs> Obviously off, there's no light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh my, I feel so dumb. Okay. I was funny than my joke and I didn't even mean to. <laughs> There, there, Journey. It's okay. All right. Uh, Rebecca, <laughs> did you want to tell our listeners where they can find us? People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics, or Twitter at WT Forensics PC, or you could email us at What the Forensics at gmail.com. Our listeners, if they want fun What the Forensic stickers, We've added a little thing on our shop um, to get stickers. Just why not? <laughs> and we just ordered a whole bunch more. So place your orders and we'll get them sent out to you relatively quickly. Um, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed listening to us talk and we will see you next time. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next week.